You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. I have a question for you all. I want you to raise your hand if you remember a series of books that was kind of popular in the late 70s, early 80s that were called Choose Your Own Adventure Books. Anybody? Yes! My people! I asked in the morning and there was not quite as many people, so thank you. If you did not have your hand raised, I have to say it is my privilege and my honor to introduce you to Choose Your Own Adventure Books. They are one of life's greatest joys. Uh, These books, they would, first of all, the first page you would open it up and it would always sort of smack you right down into the middle of some epic adventure. So like one of the books starts out, you're a deep sea explorer searching for the famed lost city of Atlantis. This is your most challenging and dangerous mission yet. And just like that, you're totally sucked in, right? Right in the middle of the action. And so then after you find out who you are, you're introduced to kind of this series of choices, of different options. So it's like, it'll say, if you decide to investigate what's behind the mysterious trap door, turn to page 17. Or if you feel tired and you decide to go home, turn to page 23. And so you're sort of like turning pages back and forth and just can't wait to discover what the adventure's going to bring. And you never know if the decision that you make is going to kind of unfold a whole new layer of excitement or if you're going to land on some sort of conclusion page and the whole thing will be over. People, this is great reading. Go on Amazon. Choose your own adventure tonight. It's not, it's, it's worth the major investment of time. I'm sure it takes probably 20 minutes to make your way through one of these books. But they're great books. And I feel like the reason that these books, at least for me, were so compelling, and I bet for most of us, is that they meet us right at the center of this tension where we live. Because on the one hand, I think all of us love adventure. We love excitement. We're all sort of captivated by the great unknown. But on the other hand, we're people that like to control. Right? We're people that like to feel like we have some say in how our life unfolds. And so that's the tension where we live, right in between uh, adventure and control. And I think that's the same place where James addresses us tonight in the text that we're going to read. It's that tension between adventure and control where James is speaking to us. Just like those choose-your-own-adventure books, James invites us to consider this big question of who we are in this great adventure. And then James also challenges us with some choice. He challenges us to choose how we measure our lives along the way. So let's look at that text together. Tonight we're looking at James chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. That's on page 982 of that black Bible in in front of you in the pew. James chapter 5, I'll just read this to you. James says, Come now, you rich people, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted, and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be evidence against you, and it will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure for the last days. Listen, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure. You've fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one, the one who does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious crop from the earth, being patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your heart, for the coming of the Lord is near. Beloved, do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. 
See, the judge is standing at the doors. And as an example of suffering, suffering and patience, beloved, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Indeed, we call blessed those who show endurance. You've heard of the endurance of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that your word is alive and that you have something to speak to us tonight. May the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Amen. So as we read this text, it's one of those funny texts that you can kind of draw a line right down the middle, and it almost feels like two different worlds, right? The first half of this passage is this scathing address to a group that James just calls you rich people. Not even a super nice greeting. And James just lays into these wealthy people, and he describes in pretty colorful detail how their treasures are going to rot and how their flesh is going to be consumed by fire. And if that's not the warm and fuzzy Father's Day scripture you were hoping for, I don't know what to tell you. But not, not a super nice picture. The second half of this passage, though, it really shifts the tone. Starting in verse 7, James starts to address this group of people who are suffering. And he shares sweet encouragement, words of hope. Reminding these people that God is compassionate and full of mercy and that the coming of the Lord is near. And that's much nicer to hear on a Sunday, right? But if we take these two together, these two different ends of the spectrum, they kind of illustrate two extreme answers to this question that James is implicitly asking us in this text Who are you? We've got the rich on one side of the spectrum, we've got the poor on the other, and we have to ask ourselves when we read this Who am I? Where do I fit in this picture? Now, it's important to point out that the first half of this, of this section is not just a wholesale condemnation of wealth in every form. No, James's words are specifically targeted at people who have accumulated excess wealth by withholding wages from their laborers. These people are frauds. They're crooks, right? James is talking about people who are perpetually groping around for more and more money. Because more money means more power and more influence and more opportunity. These are insatiable consumers. And he condemns these people because they are willfully ignoring the ways that their excessive consumption is leaving other people with nothing. These are privileged people. They've insulated themselves from the cries of the poor and the oppressed by surrounding themselves with stuff. And James has some pretty harsh words for them. So that's the one side of the spectrum. That's the rich. On the other side of the spectrum, James addresses the poor. And I use that term poor kind of broadly, not just to say that this community was financially strapped, although they probably were, but because it's clear that this community that received this letter from James was suffering and on the margins. These are people who are longing. These are the people who are poor in spirit. And that's why James associates this second group with a farmer. A farmer toils in the dirt for days, and then he waits, right? He waits and he wonders with fear and trembling if his work has been in vain. That's the poor in spirit, the laborers, the tired. They're desperate to know if their struggle has been worthwhile. They're desperate to know if their lives matter. So James presents this spectrum of rich on one side, the haves, the privileged, the powerful, and then he presents the poor on the other, the have-nots the oppressed, the marginalized. And if I'm honest, when I consider the implicit question that James is asking, who are you, it somehow feels more appealing for me to identify with the poor. 
with those who are longing and long-suffering. Anybody with me on that? I mean, I think mostly it's just because James is so much nicer to them. (laughs) And James can be a little scary. (laughs) But beyond that, I really do believe that I and that we can legitimately identify at times with the poor. Because let's face it, we all, every one of us in this room, experiences longing and suffering in a thousand different ways. We long for a deeper sense of meaning, for more influence. We long for more control over certain situations or certain outcomes. We might long for more of a sense of inclusion. Maybe we want to feel like less of a them and more like an us. I think in some ways we can all identify with the long-suffering. And I can't say that without also identifying that I am especially not interested in identifying with the rich in this scenario. I'm probably not alone there either. We read that and we kind of go, oh yeah, those corrupt rich people, oh yeah, that's not us. Nope, nope, we're, we're church people, right? We're not the ones who are hoarders of wealth and power. We're not oppressors. That's just the people out there, right? That's the people on Wall Street, that's the politicians. They are the 1%. We are the 99%, right? Most commentators would agree that the rich people that are mentioned in this text, they're actually not part of the audience that James was writing to. It's almost like James is saying, okay, you guys, there's this group of rich people out there. They're not great. Don't be like them. They've got their day of judgment coming. And that feels good to us. We're like, oh, phew, that's not us, right? We're the insiders. We're not those rich people who are going to burn and be condemned. We're the poor. We're the victims. We're the ones who are going to be comforted, right? but not so fast. N.T. Wright suggests in his commentary on James that this condemnation of the rich was actually aimed towards an even more specific group of people, and that was the religious leaders of the time, the Sadducees, the high priests in the temple. These were people who were living pretty well as prominent and respected leaders in their community. Wright says they were people who grew fat on the pilgrimages and sacrifices of faithful Jews. These were the same religious leaders who were so alarmed by this man, Jesus, who came into their synagogues and turned tables upside down and announced the Jubilee and proclaimed freedom for the oppressed, right? They were so alarmed by this disruption to their system that they totally misunderstood who he was. They were so distracted by their power and their wealth and their comfortable lifestyles, they missed the coming of their Messiah. Jesus himself wailed for Jerusalem. He said, if you had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but you did not recognize the time of your visitation. You didn't recognize me. These church leaders were so consumed by their privilege and their power that they not only failed to recognize the Messiah, but they took part in killing the innocent one, the one who did not oppose them. So our status as church people, our position as insiders in the community of God, that doesn't mean that we can ignore these warnings about wealth and power. James' question is penetrating. Who are you? What are the systems in which you operate? When I'm honest, I recognize that there are very current areas in my life where I experience a deep sense of longing and pain. There are things that I desire today, good things, simple things, that seem beyond my reach at the moment. In many ways, I am the poor. And yet, I recognize standing before you that as an upper-middle-class white man, I willfully participate every single day in systems of consumption and accumulation and privilege that are overwhelmingly beneficial for me 
and overwhelmingly oppressive and unjust to others. So in many ways, I can't deny that I am the rich. Who are you? Are you stuck in a cycle of accumulation? Are you groping and grasping to have it all? Or are you stuck in a cycle of despair, longing for something in the dark, something beyond your reach? Some days we feel like we have it all. Other days we feel like we have nothing. Most days we stand with one foot firmly planted in both camps. Who are you? In these choose-your-own-adventure stories, that's the first step, to learn who we are. And once we know if we're a deep-sea diver or an archaeologist or a space traveler from a distant galaxy, that's when the adventure begins, and we start to discover all these choices that spring up on the road before us, right? So James has confronted us with this difficult question, who are you? And if we're paying attention, he's also presenting us with a choice. People like us who vacillate on a daily and sometimes hourly basis between this bloated sense of having it all and this crippling sense of longing, when we read this text, we're invited to consider a choice between two different ways of being in the world, two different ways of measuring our lives. How will we measure our life? That's the choice we have to make. And I think it's impossible to talk about measuring our lives without also talking a little bit about time, because it seems to me that we are a people who are obsessed with time, right? We measure our lives by holidays, birthdays, anniversaries, due dates, deadlines, seconds, minutes, hours, weeks. We talk about saving time. We talk about managing time. We're so concerned with time that most of us can't even get through a church service without looking at our watch or checking our phone to see what time it is. I see you. I know who you are. Don't worry, we're Presbyterians, so we're on a tight schedule here, and we'll keep on with it. Our days are ruled by our Outlook calendars. They're usually full of our important appointments and meetings and tasks. And I think I've been surprised lately on what a common response it is when I say, hey, how's it going to someone? The response is always, I'm busy. I wish I had more time, right? We wake up every day, and almost immediately we fall into that false narrative of the scarcity of time. I'm already running late. I just need a few more minutes. How can it possibly be June 21st already, right? We're obsessed. Why? Why are we so concerned with time? I think it's because we are people who measure. We're people who plan. We're people who like to manipulate and arrange, right? We like time for the same reasons that we like to choose our own adventure, because we like to be in control. I heard a sermon once by a woman named Brenda Salter McNeil, and she reminded me that the Greeks actually had two different words for the way that we measure time. One of the words that the Greeks would use is chronos. Does that word sound familiar? Chronos. It's the root word for some of the words that we use today, words like chronology or chronicles. So when we talk about chronos time, we're talking about measurable time, you know, the hours, the weeks, the decades. And as far as James is concerned, the rich people and the poor people have the same problem. The thing that these two groups have in common is that they are absolutely obsessed with measuring their lives in chronos time. Now, don't get me wrong. Chronos time has a very important place in our lives and in the kingdom of God. But these were people who were addicted to measuring and manipulating and counting and controlling. Because they were living in a world as if it was a closed system. They were living as if the world was filled with a limited number of resources and that they had to compete. They were living in a world where the only things of value were things that you could measure or count, a closed system. 
So James first condemns the rich for this because they were upholding silver and gold as more important than human lives. He condemns their money, their fine clothing, their precious treasure that they collected so diligently. He condemns the systems that they've created so intentionally in order to protect their power and their influence, all the while oppressing the poor and the marginalized and the exploited. But guess what? James tells them all of this is going to burn. He says, it might feel as though you've ordered your days and manipulated your finances and controlled your destiny so that you'll never hunger and never thirst. But in fact, the opposite is true. The very wealth that you've counted on to protect you will actually be your demise. Because life is not measured by dollars and cents or positions of power or titles or climbing the ladder. The measure of our life is not what happens in Kronos time. It's not that simple. And of course, this obsession with Kronos time is not just a problem for the rich. When James speaks to the poor, he talks about the exact same issue. We don't know much about their particular struggle, but we know that these are people who are long-suffering. And James encourages them to be patient. And by doing that, he's actually raising the same question. How are you measuring your life? So he tells them to be patient like a farmer. Because James knows that when we experience seasons of suffering, we have this funny tendency to behave like farmers. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but let me tell you what I mean. In a state of unfulfilled longing or desperation, how many of us will respond by getting to work? Just like a farmer would, right? We roll up our sleeves and we do everything that we can to make things work. We prepare the field, we arrange the seeds just so, we know the cycle of the seasons, and we plan carefully to make sure that all the conditions are just right. How often do we toil until we collapse to try to find solutions for all of our problems? But James says, be patient as you wait. Because James knows that no matter how carefully we try to arrange our lives and overcome our problems, we're ultimately left to wait. We plant the seed in a dark place and trust that the rain will come. Our longings are not always fulfilled in Kronos time. It's not that simple. And so to the rich and to the poor, James has the same message. If you think wealth and power are going to make you happy forever, just you wait. That's not the end of the story. And if you think that longing and suffering is going to make you sad forever, just you wait. That's not the end of the story. Because life is not ultimately measured in Kronos time. And that's why those Greeks, God bless them, they had a second word that they used to describe time. It's a lovely word. They talk about this idea of kairos time. Kairos time, a little less familiar to us. While chronos time is measured by clocks and by calendars, kairos time is used to describe moments, opportunities. Kairos time is ordained time. Kairos time is the appointed time. It's the right time. Kairos time is the suitable time. Kairos time is go time. And I think James wanted to talk about Kairos time. He didn't want to talk to people about their bank accounts or their five-year plans or the number of dollars that they had and didn't need or the number of dollars that they needed but didn't have. James wanted to talk about the presence of God, right? He wanted to talk about a moment, that Kairos moment, when God bursts through all of our systems and all of our metrics and all of our structures and turns everything upside down. Over and over, James announces the presence of God. 
the coming of God, the inbreaking of God's kingdom, which was announced by Jesus and will be fulfilled in his triumphant return. Be patient, verse 7, until the coming of the Lord. Strengthen your hearts, verse 8, for the coming of the Lord is near. See, verse 9, the judge is standing at the door. These are Kairos words. It's like he's taking these people and shaking them by the shoulders and saying, you think that all these things that you have or all these things that you long for are the end of the story? No, no way. There's so much more. There are more riches than can even be counted. Your longings will be fulfilled in ways that stretch beyond your wildest imagination. The things that you can see and measure and control are meaningless compared to the significance of this moment. This already and not yet moment when the kingdom of God breaks in and is fulfilled all around us every single day for those with eyes to see and ears to hear. So James is presenting us with a choice. Rich or poor or anywhere in between. Do you want to keep living in Kronos time, competing for resources, longing for what others have, always struggling for more control? Or do you want to measure your life by Kairos time? Can you surrender your power and your privilege? Can you surrender your hopes and longings and settle into the world as it truly is? A world where we are subjects, not objects. An open system, a mystery that's far bigger than anything that we could possibly comprehend. A system that's created and governed by a God who has drawn near. A God who is compassionate and full of mercy. A God who is for us. How will you measure your life? How will you measure your life? Usually when you'd finish one of these Choose Your Own Adventure books, you'd pretty much know if you'd made good decisions along the way or not, because the riskier and the more adventurous and exciting options always led to the much more glorious outcomes. And you'd turn that last page and you'd be like, I was a hero today, right? (laughs) Thanks, Bex. (laughs) I'll pay you later. (laughs) On the other hand, if you would choose sort of the better safe than sorry options, you'd wind up at the end of the page and you'd kind of go, oh, That was kind of disappointing. That was kind of a waste of my time, right? In the same way, I think when when we make this choice of living by Kronos time or by Kairos time, that ends up determining our posture. What I'm saying is the more that we practice Kronos time or the more that we practice Kairos time, it will impact our carriage as we move throughout our journey. The more that we choose to measure by Kairos time or Kronos time, the more comfortable and familiar certain postures will become. Let me explain a little bit about what I mean. If we measure our life by Kronos time, which is that world of competing and plotting and manipulating, if we become addicted to Kronos time, our posture will become one of tightly clenched fists and sort of a rigid backbone and a head that's sort of tucked downward. This is the posture of Kronos time. This is the posture of expectations and control. We cling to our plans, our list of demands, the things we want, the things we've worked for, the things that we think we deserve. We've arranged, we've controlled, we've coordinated, and we insist that the outcomes meet with our expectations. And the more that we cling to this impulse to control and to accumulate, the more addicted we become to ourselves. This posture is very inward-facing. I want more money. I deserve more power. I'm entitled to better solutions. I need more. Where have you seen this posture of expectations and control? I see it in the professional who stays late at work every night in order to climb the corporate ladder 
because that's easier than going home and facing the relational brokenness that exists there. I see it in the perfect hair and perfect clothes and perfect car and perfect house that form an impenetrable shell around the person who's afraid to acknowledge the inward messiness of life. I see the posture of expectation and control at its very worst in a white man with a gun who believes that his skin tone entitles him to power and superiority and his fear of losing that power compels him to take the lives of nine black individuals. We're entitled. We clench our fists. We compete. That's the posture of expectations and control. But what about the posture of Kairos time? When we choose to recognize that this world is an open system, a world that's created and governed by a God who loves us, we can rest. When we measure our lives by Kairos time, we lose the, the posture of expectant, expectations and we gain the posture of expectancy. Expectancy and hope. It's not about our lists, our expected outcomes, our demands. The posture of expectancy and hope is an open-handed state of readiness to receive the good gifts of God. Musician Sarah Groves describes this as we're nodding our heads in emphatic yes to all that God has for us. It means we let go of our own ideas, our own control, our own sense of how things should go, and we open ourselves so that we might taste the redeeming grace and goodness of God. I recently heard an interview with a woman called Nadia Boltz Weber, who's a Lutheran pastor at a church in Colorado called the House for All Sinners and Saints. This woman is six feet tall. She's got tattoos all over her body. Her church opens their doors to people from all sorts of interesting different walks of life. And as I thought about these two postures of expectations and expectancy, I thought of something that she said in this interview about her church. She says, I'm not idealistic about any human project, but I'm completely idealistic about God's ability to redeem our mistakes. But if we're not open about the fact that we make mistakes, it can be a barrier to freedom and forgiveness and grace. She says, it might sound cynical for me to say, don't be too optimistic or idealistic about this church or about me, but I do tell new people who are interested in joining our community, I'm so glad that you love it here, but at some point, I'm going to disappoint you. At some point, this church will let you down. And she says, please decide on this side of that happening, that when it happens, that you're going to stick around. Because if you leave, you're going to miss the way that God's grace comes in and fills the cracks of our brokenness. And it's too beautiful to miss. Don't miss it. That's the posture of expectancy. A readiness to let go of our own plans, to relinquish our own control, and to receive a taste of redemption and grace. The posture of expectancy is the college students who are leaving this week for deputation trips all around the world. Students who sacrificed a summer of comfort and rest that they might step into the great unknown and serve poor people around the world wherever they might be. The posture of expectancy is the Seattle CEO who reduces his salary from $1 million to $70,000 so that the people in his company can have a better life. The posture of expectancy is the story of Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, a body of Christian believers who rebuilt their church that was burned to the ground by white supremacists in 1822. 
because they had the expectancy that God's work was not yet done. It's the same body of believers that met in secret and thrived for 30 years after that when the black church was outlawed in Charleston because they knew that God wasn't finished yet. And it's that same body of believers that's practicing the posture of expectancy. People who invited a stranger into their Bible study. People that days later, family members of the victims were able to make eye contact with the shooter and offer words of forgiveness and mercy and grace. Because they expected that God's work was not done. They were open. They were confident that God still reigns, that God is the father of lights, that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift, who overcomes darkness, who lifts up the poor, who fills the hungry with good things in ways that we can't even imagine. Because that's the God we serve. That's the story that we're called into. It's the choice we make, and it's the gift that we receive. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that life is hard. At times as hard as crucible steel, life has its bleak and difficult moments. Like the ever-flowing waters of the river, life has its moments of drought and its moments of flood. Like the ever-changing cycle of the seasons, life has its soothing warmth of summer and the piercing chill of winter. Lord, help us to open up. Help us to be expectant. Help us to know that you walk with us and that you are able to lift us up from the fatigue of despair to the buoyancy of hope. Help us to know that your presence transforms the dark and desolate valleys of our lives into sunlit paths of inner peace. In Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.